Okay, morning everybody. Hope you guys are well. It's a bit weird to s- preach to the camera today, but yeah. So um, I thank you f- all for joining today. Um, and I hope this word will really show you more about the character of our Father, of God. So I want to speak about the cross this morning, but let us pray first quickly and then we'll start. So Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And I just ask you to guide me to present your word accurately, Father, and um, to present it faithfully and truthfully, Father. I pray for every person listening this morning, Father, just um, open their hearts to your truth, Father. Open their hearts to hear your word, to listen to your word, Father, and that it will take fruit in their lives, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so, okay, my topic this morning, as I said, is the cross. So I want to speak about what really happened at the cross. Um, I want to start in 1 John 2, verse 2. So I want to read 1 John 2, verse 2. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. So it says here, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So it speaks about Jesus Christ that was the propitiation for our sins and for the whole world, the sins of the whole world. Now that word in the Greek means, or the word is elasmos, and it means that to appease an angry party by satisfying their demand. To appease an offended party by satisfying their demand. So this morning, I want to answer three questions in this teaching. I want to know who was the angry party what was the demand, and who was the party that made peace? All right. Now, the same word, and that word, elasmos, the Greek word for propitiation, only comes up twice in the New Testament, in 1 John 2, verse 2, and also in 1 John 4, verse 10. Now, it also comes from the word elasterion, also another Greek word, which means mercy seat. You can find that word in Hebrews 9, verse 5. And also it refers back to Exodus 25 or 17. So it speaks about the mercy seat that was above the ark. Now, inside the ark of the covenant was the law, the commandments, and the law was also kept there. And remember, the law was a witness against Israel. Now, on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And we read in James 2 verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. So mercy triumphs over the law over the witness that was against Israel. So Jesus, basically, he was the mercy seat. He was presented as the mercy seat. Now, there's a doctrine, and many people still believe this, many theologians believe this, and, but there are also many theologians that reject this doctrine. It's called penal substitution. Now, basically what it means, it, and what that doctrine believes, or what it says, is that that God was the angry party. He needed to punish the sinner, so Jesus took our place on the cross, and he took all the punishment of God, all the wrath of God on himself, so we can be forgiven. All right. That's basically, in short, what that doctrine stands for. Now, there's a few contradictions with that doctrine. First of all, if we believe that Jesus took all the wrath of God on himself, so he was put on the cross in our place to appease the anger of God. It separates the Father and the Son on the cross. Because now we have an angry God and we have a Son that appeases that anger by taking all the punishment of the Father. So 
And Jesus, he told his disciples, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. All right, so, and we read in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that Jesus was the express image of the Father, of his character. So never in the Bible is there any difference between Jesus and the Father in character or in judgment or in love. They're always the same. They're one. That's why Jesus, he came to reveal the true character of the Father. So there was no separation ever between them. And the second contradiction with that doctrine is we are so quick to say that God's love is unconditional. We are quick to say that. But if you believe that God killed Jesus on the cross so he could forgive us, so he could set us free, that puts a condition to his love. That makes his love conditional and not unconditional. Now we read in 1 John 4 that God is love. He is love. And 1 Corinthians 13 explains to us what love is. And it explains that love doesn't keep any record of wrongs. So if God never kept any record of your wrongs, what was there to punish? Why did he have to punish somebody to forgive us? And then the third one, and this is a famous one, famous argument used for that doctrine, is to say that God is just. All right? I always say that God is love, but he's, he's, a, he's a good judge. Now, they use the argument that when a judge in court lets a, a guilty person go free, he's not a good judge, he's a bad judge. But on the other hand, if you have a judge in court and he gives an innocent person a death sentence and he lets the guilty person go free, isn't that a bad judge as well? So there's a few contradictions with that doctrine and it doesn't add up. So I want us to go to the scripture today. I want to answer those three questions. And maybe you will see the cross in a new way, maybe not. I'm not here to change your beliefs or anything. I'm just here to present you what scripture says. And you don't have to change your belief, but just do this. Take what I'm saying today and go study it out for yourself. All right. So let's go. The first question that I want us to answer is, who was the angry party? Who was the angry party? So I'm going to go back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, immediately after they ate from, that, from the knowledge of good and evil, they hid themselves from God. Bible says the eyes opened, they realized they were naked, and they hid themselves from God. Now just there we can see that who hid themselves from who? God never hid his face from man, it was man that hid himself from God. All right. I want to read quickly Romans 1 from this 19 to 23. It says, because that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his internal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So I just want to highlight that last verse. It says, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. That's exactly what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the knowledge of good and evil in the Greek, and even in the Septuagint version, and in the Hebrew, it refers to outward good and evil. So it, it refers to the physical realm, all right? 
to good and bad behavior. So what happened is Adam and Eve identified themselves with creation instead of with the likeness and the image of God. So they identified themselves with the corruptible. They changed the image, the truth of the image of God into a corruptible. All right, into the corruptible, corruptible man. And like we, say, like we read there in Romans um, 1 verse 19 to 23. So they exchanged that to the corruptible. If you read in Romans 8, and we, we can read from verse 1 to 8, it says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritual minded is life. Now again, carnally minded is, is to identify yourself with the physical, with the creation, with the corruptible, and not to identify yourself with the spirit. Because our spirits are internal. Our spirits originate from God and is internal. All right. So what happened was Adam and Eve identified themselves with the corruptible instead of the incorruptible, which is the image and the likeness of God. And that leads to death. Um, we know in Matthew 23, verse 9, that Jesus told his disciples, he says, don't call anybody on earth your father. He says, but you have one father which is in heaven. All right. Now, Jesus didn't mean that we cannot call our father's father or dad or something like that. What you are saying there is that don't identify yourself with your earthly father. Identify yourself with your true father, which is in heaven. Because that's where you come from. That's where your spirit comes from. All right. That's your origin. That's the origin of your identity. So that's what he was saying. Even when he taught the disciples how to pray, he says, pray like this, our Father which is in heaven. It refers back to our true identity, our origin. All right. Let's quickly go to Hebrews 10, verse 1 to 3. So verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, Make those who approach perfect, for then would they have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So again, we see here that it was man's consciousness that needed to be cleansed. It was man's consciousness that needed to be released from sin, to be released from guilt. Not God's conscience. All right. And it says there that those sacrifices that they brought year by year could not cleanse their conscience because every year they were reminded of their sin. They were reminded of, of their sin. And, and that led to guilt, continually feeling guilty about yourself and, and shameful. The same happened in the garden. Immediately after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they threw fig leaves together, and they covered their, it says in Job that they covered their transgression with fig leaves. They tried to cover it. Again, God, he didn't hid from them. He was actually looking for them. He called out to them. And at the end, he clothed them with skin. He took away those fig leaves, not so that he could look at them different, but so that Adam and Eve can look at themselves differently. So, because if he would have left the, fig leaves on them, every time they would have looked at that fig leaves, they would have been reminded of their sin, which would have produced guilt and shame and so on. So God clothed them instead, showing to them that they are forgiven, showing to them that, <laughs> that he still wants a relationship with them. He never hid from them. I just want to quickly go, let's go to John 12, verse 31 to 
32. So verse 30 says the following. I'm going to read from verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. The King James Version says all people. Some translations say all men. But in the original language, the word men is not there or people. And the context of that verse is judgment. And it speaks about the judgment of the world. So it's not the judgment of God on the world. It's the judgment of the world on Jesus. How they judge them and put them on the cross. Luke 23 says that when Pilate presented Jesus to the people, and he said, I don't find any fault in this person. Immediately, the high priest and the priest shouted out, crucify, crucify. So Jesus was killed by the high priest. He was killed by his own people. Even Peter in Acts 3 verse 15 and Acts 5 verse 30, he blamed the Jews. He, said, he told the Jews, he said, you killed the author of life. You killed Jesus Christ. You killed him. Paul also in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 14 to see, he says the Jews killed Jesus. So he wasn't killed by God. He was killed by his own people. He was killed by the Jews. He was killed by the high priest. In Romans 5 verse 8 to 10, he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, he says here, when we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God. So again, the enemy wasn't God. The enemy was us. We were enemies in our minds. Colossians 1 verse 20 to 22 also speaks about it. It says that we were enemies in our minds because of wicked works. So we were enemies. And he says, while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. I just want to go to Psalm 22. Uh, now, when Jesus was on the cross, and um, a lot of people use this verse to say that God couldn't look at Jesus, and he was separated from Jesus on the cross, because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? But what some people don't realize is that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 when he said that. Now, the Jews knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. And that was actually a song that they sung many times. So when Jesus, and Jesus a lot in the, in the Gospels, many times in the Gospels, he quoted verses from the Old Testament to fulfill them. Why did he do that? It was to reveal to the Jews that he was the Messiah. Because he was fulfilling all the prophecies about him in the Old Testament. The same with Psalm 22. It was a project. David prophesied about Jesus. He prophesied about the Messiah. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He was quoting, he was fulfilling that prophecy, revealing to the Jews, he is the one, he's the Messiah that would come to die for them. And at the end, if you read Psalm 22, verse 24, it says there, God never hid his face from Jesus. He heard his prayer. He heard his call. He never hid his face from him. He was with Jesus there, but I will come to that later. All right. I will also want to quickly look at Isaiah 53. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 6. Let me read from the Young's Literal Translation. Sorry, I'm going to go to Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely our sicknesses he has borne, and our pains he has carried them. And we 
We have esteemed him, plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. So again, it says here, we thought that he was smitten by God. We, it was a man thought that God was punishing Jesus on that cross. Even in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says that, and let me go back to the New King James, it says that, it, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it says there in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But if I read this verse in the Septuagint version, I'm going to quickly read that verse, same verse. Now the Septuagint version was compiled by 70 Greek scribes, even before the time of Jesus. So that was actually the version that was uh, in play at the time of Jesus and the disciples. It was compiled for the Jews that went to Egypt, so they could read the Old Testament in the Greek. Now, I just want to quickly want to read that translation, the Septuagint translation of that verse. Now, this translation is much older than the King James or all the other translations, and in some places much more accurate. So it says, verse 10, And the Lord willed to cleanse him of the beating. If you should offer for a sin offering the thing for your life, you shall see seed along lift. So it says here, and the Lord will to cleanse him of the beating. So completely opposite of what the King James Version is saying. All right, so let's go to question two. So from question one, who was the angry party? Who was the offended party? Clearly we can see that God didn't need cleansing. God's conscience didn't need cleansing. It was man's conscience that needed cleansing. It was man's conscience that was an enemy. It was man's conscience. It was man that hid himself from God and not God that hid himself from man. All right. So the angry party was not God. The angry party was man's fallen mindset because they fell short of the glory of God. They identified themselves with creation, with the corruptible, instead of the image and the likeness of God, instead of the corrupt, incorruptible. All right. So they saw God as this angry person that needed to be appeased. All right. So the second question, what was the demand? Now, the demand was sacrifice. We know that because Jesus was... He, he, he was presented as a sacrifice. But just quickly something before we look at Scripture. Sacrifices were in the world long before Israel came into being, long before that. I mean, even in the time of Abraham, even in the time of um, Abel and Cain, sacrifices were there already. Now, it was throughout the heathen nations. I mean, Abraham, he grew up in a culture that sacrificed their sons to appease their gods. And even in Egypt, we know that Israel... It was in Egypt for over 400 years. The Egyptians sacrificed animals to their gods. So it wasn't something new that was introduced to Israel. Right? Sacrifices were in the world long before that. Now, again, always sacrifices were there to appease the gods. It was always there to appease the gods to, because people had this view of their gods. They had this view, even if it's the true God or whether it were false gods, they had this view that they are, the gods are there watching. And they are watching ready to punish or to bless. So if you do bad, they're going to punish you. If you do good, they're going to bless you. If you do bad, you need to bring a sacrifice to appease their anger. That was their view of God. That's how the people viewed God. So let's go to Hebrews 10, verse 5, and see whether God wanted sacrifice. Did he require sacrifice before he could forgive us? So I'm going to read from verse 5. So he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, so this it speaks about Jesus. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, 
but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. The law required sacrifice. Man's mindset required sacrifice to appease their guilt. Let's go to Jeremiah 7, verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. So again it says here, God didn't even command them about sacrifice. It says they followed their own heart, their own evil heart. You see, the knowledge of good and evil demands sacrifice, to appease guilt, to appease that shame. All right. Let's go to Jeremiah 19, verse 5. I'm going to read from verse 4. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Listen to what God says here. He says, I never commanded them. It never even entered in my mind for them to sacrifice their sons. And this was to Baal. What they did is they sacrificed their sons to Baal. They, they burned them alive, sacrificing them. And God said it never even entered his mind. So how can we think that it ever entered God's mind to kill his own son? Or to kill anybody for that matter? All right. Again, it goes against the character of God. I quickly want to read Psalm 89, but it will get more clear as we go on. Let's go to Psalm 89, verse 14. It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Now, the word righteous there in the Hebrew culture, it meant to help people in need, to do good works. That was righteousness to them. The word justice there and judgment Actually, mostly throughout the Bible, not always, but it means to make a decree. Usually when we, or many times when we hear the word judgment, we immediately think of punishment. That's not what that word means. It means to just make a decree. So when God, in Genesis 2, when he told Adam and Eve, or when Adam, for that matter, when he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. He wasn't saying to Adam, the day you eat thereof, I'm going to kill you. He wasn't saying that. He was just stating that that is what will happen when you do that. It's the same as when I tell my baby daughter, if you play with a knife, you're going to hurt yourself. I'm not going to take the knife and hurt her. I'm just stating something. This is what will happen if you do that. It's exactly what God did. He made a decree. If you eat from that tree, this is what will happen. All right. The same if he says, love one another. He makes a decree. All right. He's stating something. Or when he says, when you follow the right path, this will happen. This, the good will come to you. He's making the decree. That is what will happen when, when you do this. All right. So it's just a decree. And then we also read that 
mercy and truth will follow him. Now, Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4, is a prophecy about Jesus. Now, I quickly want to read this to you. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law so it says it speaks about jesus that would come and it says he will establish justice on the earth all right justice unto truth so what did jesus do he came to reveal the character of the father jesus said <laughs> he came in john he says in john 1 verse 17 and to 18 you can read it there he says the law came through Moses, but truth and grace came through Jesus. He established judgment unto truth. What did Jesus say? He says, in Matthew 9, verse 10, he says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Then he told the scribes, go learn what that means. He told his disciples, this is the command I give you, love one another. So the truth that Jesus came to reveal, the justice, the decree that he came to make was revealing the true character of the Father, which is to love one another which is to show mercy and not sacrifice. All right. Um, now, we need to know that the law of Moses, because it says in John 1 verse 17, it says the law came through Moses. The law didn't reveal the Father. Because when we read in 2 Corinthians 3 that it says as long as the law of Moses is read, their hearts are veiled. Because the law didn't reveal the Father. The sacrificial system didn't reveal who the Father really is. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to show who the Father really is. The law, if you read Hebrews 9 verse 22, the law required blood for the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't God. Under the law, blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. All right. So Jesus was born under the law to release the people that were under the law from the law. So he became the ultimate sacrifice. We read in Romans 3 verse, from verse 22 to 25, it says God presented him as a sacrifice. Why? Because he was born under the law. The law required sacrifice. The law required blood for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus became that to fulfill it and to release them from that sacrificial system, to cleanse their conscience. That's what happened there. And as we read, God didn't kill Jesus. Jesus was killed by the high priest. The high priest shouted out, with the other priest, they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. He was killed by the high priest. He was the ultimate sacrifice, once and for all. So Jesus came to settle man's mind, to appease his mind, being the sacrifice once and for all. So they wouldn't bring sacrifice over and over and over again, continually be reminded of their sin. So it can be once and all settled, that they are forgiven, that they are declared righteous. We read there in Romans 3, verse 22 to 25, it says, God declared his righteousness or he manifested his righteousness at the present time. Um, I'm going to go to Romans 5 as well. I've read it already. But it says also that Jesus in his blood, he declared us righteous. Let me read Romans 3. I just want to read something to you so you guys can see what it says exactly. Romans 3 from verse 22. So it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all 
and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Listen to this. He says the righteousness is <laughs> on all people, to all people and those that believe, there is no difference. So it's not only on believers, the righteousness is for all people. Then he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's what happened in God. They fell short of the image and the likeness of God, of the character of God. They identified themselves with creation, with the corruptible instead of the incorruptible, which is the image and likeness of God. Then it says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. In other translations, it says He presented Him, all right? He needed to be presented as a sacrifice because that's what the law required by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has, had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And it says that God never, he never kept the record of wrongs in the past. That's actually what it's saying. Now, Romans 5 also it says, and we've read that, that in his blood he declared us righteous. Now, the word declared, there's a difference in saying that to make one righteous and to, to declare one righteous. If you make one righteous, that means he wasn't righteous before, but you're making him righteous now. To declare somebody righteous means it's something that was already true. It's just a declaration. Again, about what was true already. It's just a declaration of what was true already. So Jesus actually came to, to come, he showed our true origin, our spirit, which was righteous, all right. Declared our true Identity. He identified us with our true uh, identity, which is the image and the likeness of our Father. Let's go to Leviticus 17, verse 11. It says that the blood, the blood is the life of the flesh. The Jews saw blood as the seat of life. So that's why we, we, hear the, we see in the law, so it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life actually for a life. Because they believed only a life blood needed to be poured out to appease or to take away their sin or for forgiveness. All right? It was a life for a life. It was a two for a two, an eye for an eye. Because the blood was the seed of life. Now, in Matthew 5, verse 38 to 45, I want to read it to you quickly. Jesus came and he, he says, remember it was said. And then he changed it. Listen to this. He says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And whatever and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asked you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus says, so he takes the law and he turns it upside down. He says, you have heard it was said like this. I says, but now I'm saying to you, Bless your enemy. Bless those that persecute you. Do good to those that hate you. He says, so that you can be sons of your Father which is in Why? Because that is the character of the Father. 
Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 1, he says, we have to imitate our Father as, as sons. So why would God tell us to love our enemies, to do good to those that, that hate us, and to bless those who curse us? Why would God tell us to do that if He kills His Son, if He does the opposite? That's not who God is. He cannot go against His Word. He cannot go against His character. That is His character. All right. He sends rain to the evil and the good person. All right. And actually, Ephesians 4 tells us that God is the Father of all. He's the Father of every person. All right. I mean, you as a father, if your child rejects you, you're not going to go out and break his leg now or kill him or do something like that. You are going to continue try to win him back, try to have a relationship with him, try to lead him on the right path. Right. So the justice of God is <laughs> not there to punish, it's there to correct you. We have to look at, at the justice of God from a fatherly perspective. Not from a judge sitting there and see who he can kill and see who he can bless, or something like that. We have to look at the justice of God from a fatherly perspective. Because Jesus came to reveal him as our father. Not as a judge sitting there killing and blessing. Right? As our father. So his justice is corrective justice. His punishment is not killing you or hurting you. His punishment is correcting Corrective punishment, if I can say it like that. Right. He always has our best interest at heart. John 10 verse 10 also says, he says, Jesus came to give us life and more abundance. He says the thief kills, steals, and destroys. The thief there refers to the Pharisees that put their yoke on the people. All right. Jesus even, he, he said to them in Matthew 23, he says, you make people twice as worthy for hell by your doctrine. All right. When you're done with them. Right, they are twice as worthy for hell after you are done with them. So, God's purpose, His will is always to bring us life, not death. That's His will, is to give us life. The thief kills, the thief destroys. All right, the thief takes away. Hebrews 9 verse 15 also says that Jesus' blood cleansed our conscience. It cleansed our conscience from evil works. The evil works there is sacrifice to appease. It's a dead work to continually bring sacrifices to appease or to appease an angry God or to appease your guilt. It's a dead work. It's a dead work. He says, no, I came once and for all to be the sacrifice. I lay down my life to be the sacrifice to settle your minds that you are forgiven, to settle your minds that you are righteous. That's what Jesus said. And it also says that he ministered in the true tabernacle. He went into heaven itself with his blood. Now, we think of heaven, when, it's, when it says Jesus presented his blood in heaven, we think of heaven somewhere in outer space, somewhere there. It's not what it's, it speaks about there. Jesus ministered, he was a high priest of the true tabernacle. So when it says he went into heaven itself, that means he went into man's conscience. Because man is a true temple of God. The true holy of holies is inside of man. All right? So Jesus went into the hearts of man to cleanse their conscience by his blood, by settling their minds once and for all. No sacrifices are needed anymore. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. All right? You are innocent. Even God told Peter in Acts 10, he says, don't call any man, don't call any man unclean. He says, they have been cleansed. All right? Don't call any man unclean. Now, 
We all know the verse that says that the wages of sin is death. So listen carefully what that verse says. The wages of sin is death. We also read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, thinking from verse 56 and onward, it says the sting of sin is death. So sin in itself has punishment. It's not God punishing you with death or God punishing you with death when you sin. It's sin itself that punishes you. You know, when, <laughs> when somebody continually using drugs and drugs and drugs, he's killing himself. It's not God punishing him. Same with somebody that continually drinks and drinks and drinks alcohol. If some, something happens to that person, it's not God punishing that person. It's the way he's living that it actually is punishing him. All right. So sin in itself has punishment. The wages of sin the, the produces death. All right. Romans 5 verse 12 also, and let me read that quickly. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So again, it says sin entered the world through man, but death entered through sin. All right. So the wage of sin in itself has punishment. So quickly, the last question. So again, we see that God didn't demand, God didn't want sacrifice. He didn't demand sacrifice. It was man's conscience that needed sacrifice to appease his guilt. So quickly, I'm going to, and I'm finishing off now. 2 Corinthians 5 is 19 to 21. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, we see that God was in Christ on the cross. So where was God on the cross? He was in Christ. He was one with Christ. In 1 John 3 verse 16 also it says, it says that God laid down his life. So what happened? The creator laid down his life for his creation, to be killed by his creation, to appease their mindsets, to appease their guilt, to appease their anger, so they can be released from that lie, released from that sin. Romans 8 verse 38, Paul says that, he is fully persuaded of this, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not death, not life, no principality, nothing. Nothing created can separate you from the love of God. David says in Psalm 139, he says, wherever he goes, God is there. He cannot hit himself from the Spirit of God. God is everywhere. All right. And then also we read in Colossians 1, verse 20 to 21, that it says Jesus made peace through his blood. So the one that the party that made peace was God. He made peace. I'm going to finish off the last two verses. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 and then 1 Peter 3 verse 18. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. I'm going to read from verse 23. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by his stripes, you were healed. So he says, he bore our sins that we might live to righteousness, that we can start. Jesus, he cleansed our conscience. He stopped that, he appeased that anger, that violence, that uh, guilt, and that shame. He appeased that, he settled that for once and all, so we can start identify ourselves with our true origin, our true identity, which is righteousness, and start living according to righteousness. And then in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So again, he says, he died to bring us to God. So he died so he can bring us out of hiding to God again. Because man, and started in the garden, man hid from God. And Jesus came to bring us out of hiding to God, to reconcile us back to God, to make peace 
to our mindset, to appease our mindsets and bring us back to God. So, again, as we have seen that the angry party was not God, it was man's mindset. Man's mindset, the knowledge of good and evil, required sacrifice, required appeasement. Same with the law. Jesus came, God came to lay down his life to appease that anger, to appease that, uh, that guilt, that shame once and for all, so we can start identify ourselves with our true identity, which is our Father in heaven, the image and likeness of God. Father, so I thank you for your word um, that um, it entered people's hearts and they heard your word, Father, and I thank you that it will bring change. It will bring change in the way they see you, Father. It will bring change in the way they see the cross, Father. They will see your true love, Father, of a creator loving his creation so much that he laid down his life for his creation to be killed by his creation to cleanse their minds, to cleanse their conscience from all that anger, from all that guilt and shame, Father. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you that you always have our best interest at heart, always, Father, that you are continually guiding us into truth, leading us on your path. Father, I thank you for that in the name of Jesus. I bless every person, Father, that listened today, Father. I just bless them with truth, Father. I bless them to awaken to their true selves, Father, and to who you truly are, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.